Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Vets Beyond the Uniform. A weekly podcast that focuses on helping veterans successfully find and integrate into new careers after leaving the military service. Listen in as our host and guest experts share key insights on the successful programs helping veterans to enter and thrive in the civilian workforce. For more information after the program, please visit us at VetsBeyondTheUniform.com. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Vets Beyond the Uniform podcast. I am Mally Mancia, and joining me today from Vets Beyond the Uniform, I have Paul Savalani and Dave Beadle. On today's show, Paul and Dave will be talking with Ed Henkler, Navy veteran and founder of The Blind Group. Welcome, everyone. Well, thank you, Mally. Good to be here. And thank you also for Ed. You're welcome. Hey, Ed, welcome to the show. And um, got to say, really impressed with all the stuff you're doing at the Blind Guide. And would love for you to start to tell us about your organization. How did it come about? Uh, a bit of happenstance, but also aligned with my passion. So I had spent uh, 30 years between the Navy and time at Merck, uh, just in corporate America. But in the, on the side, my mom had lost her sight to age-related macular degeneration that occurred in the 1990s, and it was the first time I would say I ever inter- interacted with somebody who was blind or visually impaired. Brand new experience for me, not sure how to help her, but I was fortunate enough to come across an association for the blind in the Philadelphia area, and they restored her independence. It took some time, but after Working with them, she was able to travel outside the country, and that was for the first time in her life. She traveled all over on public transportation. She became a speaker for them, so she learned to thrive. But I would say at that point, as I was still working at Merck, that it wasn't really a focus of mine. It was just something I did on the side. As time progressed, I became involved with the Association for the Blind Board. I was board president for a stint also, but still did it on the side. And then after an early retirement from Merck, I thought about what I wanted to do and what I cared about most, and I realized that it was helping people thrive with vision loss. It had impacted our family very directly, and I also had become aware that it was possible to thrive. So I spent a bit of time working with young companies developing technology, but I also started the Blind Guide, and the whole idea there was to help both the people losing their sight and their caregivers understand how to transition first through the loss and then subsequently to learn to thrive with it. I will say there are a lot of resources out there for somebody who's blind, far fewer for a caregiver. And the caregiver in the end is the one that's going to help make the person successful, assuming they have the right attitude. So that's the, uh, that's the background behind, I guess, how I got started with the blind guide. And how do you support 
veterans with regards to that? I mean, how do you reach out? I know you associate with a lot of groups and a lot of organizations. How does that work? The veteran passion's always been there after my own years of service. It was less of a focus until I connected with an organization called the Blinded Veterans Association. And that really is in recent years, but it's what expanded my focus beyond saying that I focus on people who are blind or visually impaired to my current tag, which is that I focus on helping veterans, veteran spouses or military spouses and people with disabilities learn to thrive and to find employment. The reason BVA, that's the Blinded Veterans Association, made such an impact is I saw folks who had served and in many cases lost their sight due to aging, but in other cases were young people who had lost their sight in combat. And it made an incredible impression on how your life can be changed so dramatically. And in the case of that type of vision loss, it occurs suddenly. It isn't, my mom had years to adjust to the idea of losing her sight uh, because she only lost one eye at a time over a period of years. For a veteran, uh, one of the contacts I had was injured in an IED explosion. And he went from sighted, fully sighted, seconds later to unable to see. That type of dramatic loss is so hard to get past. And yet, I think the nature of a veteran and what they've done makes them resilient and often better able to overcome something like that. So the one image that I have from Blinded Veterans Association, and I think it's an image all of us could hold, is watching an older man who is blind with his cane lead a group of about 20 other people who are blind through a conference area. And uh, it was literally the blind leading the blind. There was nobody helping that person in the front. They just were an experienced person with blindness and with navigational skills. Uh, but to see that, you just realized how much they care about each other and for each other and also the strength of character and will that would let that person lead. So while I care about all the groups, the veterans, particularly the intersects with vision loss, is very close and personal to me. You had mentioned in one of our conversations your work with the National Industries for the Blind, and there's a large amount of veteran population in working with them. Can you tell us a little more about that and how uh, the National Industries for the Blind works? Happy to do that. I will say that I found out my statistic might have been a bit skewed. Um, there are a lot of veterans who are blind, but fewer of working age, but they still work with a, a substantial population. So National Industries for the Blind, or NIB, as I continue to answer the question, is the largest employer of people who are blind in the country. They work with 100 regional affiliates, nonprofit associations that are all over the country to find employment opportunities, to engage with the community, and to help people who are blind find employment and also perhaps just also learn to thrive. They're going through a pretty big evolution, though. So NIB, up until recently, most of the employment opportunities were through a program called Ability One, which is a nice program, but it often doesn't include mainstream compensation. And at the end of the day, you're working for a company that has blind in the title. And it's not that that's a terrible thing, 
But somebody who's blind wants to work for the same company somebody who's sighted works for. They don't want to be limited to organizations that employ and serve people who are blind. They, they want the same options any other person has. So what they've done in recent years is they've begun training, and this is a very nice link to what you do at Vets Beyond the Uniform, but they are providing mainstream training for people who are blind. It includes teaching IT and cyber skills. It includes teaching them how to close out government and general contact contracts. It involves talent sourcing, teaches them to be talent sources, which is the input to recruiting. What this does is it opens up mainstream employers and mainstream opportunities in IT, HR, project management, and other areas like that. So that's been step one, uh, much better training programs, preparing people who are blind for the workforce. The second thing they're doing that will launch this coming month in February, and it's called NSITE, N-S-I-T-E. And what they're going to do there is move past just training the job candidate to working with the employers and making sure that employers provide a welcoming environment for somebody who's blind or visually impaired. And that's going to include both working with the employees, it's going to be the managers, the supervisors, but it also gets into accommodations. And just while I'm on that topic, most accommodations for somebody who's blind are, are very inexpensive. Uh, they, they need software. There's a software called JAWS that they use to integrate with mainstream software, such as the Microsoft Suite. But most of them already have it on their computers uh, because it's how they interact. It's a screen reader, but a screen reader on steroids, kind of. So you have that, which you might have to purchase. You may have to spend a little bit of time helping that person who's blind learn to work, walk around a new area that's unfamiliar to them. But once they learn it, they can operate completely independently. And sometimes they'll have better sense of direction than somebody that's sighted because of the way they're forced to navigate. They really have to memorize number of doors, number of turns, number of things that somebody who's sighted doesn't always think about. And final comment on that is that many associations for the blind, and they can be found around the world and also are available via link on my site, many associations for the blind will go into an employer's workplace and provide some of that training and absolutely provide the orientation that the person who's blind needs to succeed. So a lot of resources out there. Most of the hurdles to employing anyone who's blind are more perceived than real. And I think it's great you put all those out there. So I'm going to go a little bit back into your life, a little bit back into your history. So you spent 10 years as a nuke power, um, uh, a nuke in the Navy. For those that don't understand what I mean, that's nuclear power, working with nuclear power in the Navy. Can you tell us a little bit about your what you did in the Navy and a little bit about your transition out, because part of what you talk about, one of the things we talk about here at, at Vets BTU is sometimes people leave the military and don't necessarily go into the roles and the jobs that they did in the military, right? They may go into, um, well, for example, it looks like you left nuclear power and you went into biopharmaceuticals. Can you give us a little talk about that? Because I mean, that's near and dear to what we're also doing. Happy to do that. So my 10 years in the Navy, and this will also explain why I stopped at 10 years, I spent the first two to three years after college going through additional schooling. So it was a nuclear power uh, 
program, both a training and a prototype, uh, academic and a prototype area. I went through surface warfare school, and then I actually went to a ship that was under construction, the Carl Vinson, and I spent three years in the shipyard on a rotating shift, but three years in the shipyard while the ship was built. Uh, my focus has always been on the engineering side, so I was uh, one of the engineering shift officers on the ship. I went out for the final month for sea trials, and then I, I switched over to a nuclear cruiser that was on the other side of the same dock, actually, in Virginia, and I went to the Arkansas. On the Arkansas, I spent probably, it feels like 20 out of the 24 months at sea. Only one deployment, but just continuously at sea, including changing home ports. And I was the main propulsion assistant there, so we were on, at sea we were every other day on duty, and on land it was every third day. So it was, it was an all-encompassing role. And then I went to North Carolina State University where I taught ROTC for the final years in my career, in my shortened career. So before I explain why I left, I want to say I, I admire, respect, and thank everybody who puts in a full career. It was probably never my path. Uh, and had I stayed in for another 10 years at least, I probably would have spent seven of the 10 at sea, which was part of why, for me, it wasn't the right choice. But again, thanks to all of those who put in so many years and managed their families while doing that. When I got ready to get out, I knew that I was ready to leave. I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't know what company I would work for. I didn't know what job I could do. I naively said, I think I want to get out of nuclear power, which would have been a very easy transition because every the, the nuclear power plants across the country are populated by people that have the training that I have, and a lot of them from the Navy, but not exclusively. So it would have been a very easy transition. But one of the things I remembered, and this is going back into the 70s, into the very early 80s, is that nuclear power was viewed as a very evil thing. I really don't think it is. They still need to figure out how to dispose or recycle the fuel. But other than that, it's a very clean, very sustainable source of energy. But the world doesn't always like it. And certainly in America, there were a lot of protests. So I said, I want to get out of that. And actually, I would also mention this is around the time of Three Mile Island. And even though that caused no deaths or other things, that's part of what had made society turn, I think, quite a bit against nuclear power. So again, I said, gee, I want to get out of that. I don't want to work in some area where everybody hates you. So going into biopharma felt like a great move because then I'm helping people with their health. We're helping develop medicines that are going to let people live longer, live better. And I don't think I had been at Merck more than a month before I discovered animal research and how Many people don't like that. So it seemed like a good idea, but my real reason for going there ended up not being valid. When I got out, I tried to think about what I wanted to do. Consumer product or consumer packaged goods companies are very big on hiring the military. And I felt like every junior officer fair I went to had Frito-Lay and Procter & Proctor and Gamble and companies like that. There was a piece of me that said that doesn't feel noble. I've been in the military for all this time, I want to do something that feels that it's, it's very noble. And that is a personal, it's a personal perception. I think it's actually false as I look back, but it, it, at the time, that's what I was thinking. So biopharma felt like it was a noble thing to be doing, improving people's health, trying to people help people live better. But I went into those job fairs, again, just hoping somebody would hire me and uncertain if anybody would hire me. 
And along came Merck, and I think I've learned since, and this is advice for anyone getting out of the military, don't undervalue yourself. You have tremendous skills. You, you bring so many good things to an employer. For me, again, I was just grateful somebody was willing to hire me, probably the wrong perspective. I was brought, I was hired into Merck at the very lowest uh, salary, the very lowest uh, salaried position. It was just a quality control inspector. And I thought it was ironic that I had gone from managing a nuclear power plant on a ship to being responsible for making sure that people were putting product in the package the right way with no supervisors, nothing else. It was very, I was excited to be on to a new career and probably very disheartened that I was doing something so menial versus what I had been doing. And that's going to be true of anybody, I think, leaving the military. The level of responsibility you have at an early age in any role is far higher than it is for civilian careers. I had been there six weeks. Maybe this is the good part of the story. Six weeks in, my boss asked me to go interview in another area. And I'd have to admit my first reaction was, I must have screwed up. What did, I, what did I do wrong that he's trying to get rid of me after only six weeks? His answer was that you don't belong here. This is the wrong level for you, and you're capable of so much more. I just wanted you into Merck, and we got you here. So they jumped me two levels uh, within two months of joining the company, and a year later jumped me another two levels. That's a nice story, and then I progressed beyond then. But then I saw somebody come to Merck with almost an identical background, in this case coming out of the Army, but a very similar background to mine. He started at the level that I got jumped to over those first several years. And that may not seem like a big deal, but where you start is part of your track record. And I think sometimes it's harder to advance when you're starting from a junior level trying to get to a very senior level as opposed to already being sort of at the bottom of middle management and moving up. People do it all the time, but it's harder. So big messages for me, number one, think about where you want to go, what passion you have. It doesn't have to relate to your military because all you're trying to do is bring your skills and leadership knowledge forward, not necessarily technical skills. If you loved what you did, then by all means, stay with it. But if not, you have a generic set of, of skills that are going to be valuable to any employer. Uh, pick the place that you really want to be that aligns with your passion and or geographic present, preference and or even how much you want to earn. And then once all that occurs, don't go in cocky, but also don't undersell yourself. Yeah, I that's, think that's that was a great story. Questions. Hey, Dave, Dave's here. And, uh, you know, the thing that, that struck me as I was listening to what you were saying there, and this, this is a theme that resonates a lot with a lot of the transitioning service members we talk about, is um, you say passion, but I think really what you described more is, is purpose. You know, you had um, – you had some challenges with uh, you know the the type of work you were doing in the Navy because and I remember those those Three Mile Island days and everything else I was in Oregon uh, at the time as well where they were building the nuclear power plant up there and uh, at the Trojan plant since been closed down you know you're you're you were challenged by that you were challenged by uh, the the uh, morality of animal research and things so you said noble so you you hit it on on the head in terms of one of the things that's really critical that we find is very critical for transitioning service members is you have to you have to align yourself with the sense of purpose that works for you and what that means and that is a that's a critical piece that can oftentimes be a difficult one for 
uh, veterans once they're out to find in a civilian career. And the other big thing that you hit on that we also find as a, as a challenge is this, this idea of underemployment, where you're first coming into an organization, they put you into a job that's way beneath your, your skill set. And yeah, you, you were fortunate that you had a boss who kind of pushed you along and said, hey, you don't, you don't need to be here. We want you somewhere else. Oftentimes, we see so many people that get into those roles that don't get that push and think they're just kind of sitting there waiting for something to happen, and they end up being very underutilized, discouraged, they leave. And like you said, where you start is a very big um, determining factor oftentimes, especially in the, in the private sector, uh, of where you end up. Um, so now, now how long, was your, how long uh, were you at work? How many years there? I was there 21 years. 21 years. Okay, great. And then, um, so I'm going to shift gears back a little bit. So these are, like I said, the things. Yeah. Might I start? Yeah, because I want to go back to two things you said very quickly. I like the purpose versus passion, although there's some theme behind the passion. I just want to mention it because it's hard to figure out where you want to go unless perhaps that's just always been a destination you had in mind. I like to ask people that I coach a question and that is if I handed you a million dollars and you could not keep it, you had to give it away. What cause or causes would you give it to? Uh, Because when people used to ask me what my passion was at Merck, my answer was strategic planning. And I don't think that's a passion. I think it's a skill. Um, Mm -hmm. Once you ask the question that way, that's what took me into prevention of blindness and enabling tech for the blind. So thinking about that, I think, is a way to figure out where you may want to go. The other thing is no matter where you land, always be thinking about your next job. It can be with the same employer. It can be with a different employer, and it doesn't in any way suggest lack of loyalty. But few people will ever spend 40 or 50 years with a single company the way um, my parents did. Uh, you always want to know where that next step is, and it doesn't in any way diminish your loyalty to your employer. It just means you're preparing and, and having a backup plan when needed. Yeah, exactly. I think the other piece of that too is that even a lot of employers recognize the fact that um, you know if you're not if you're not growing, how how then are you enabling and helping the the organization grow and improve as well? And uh, gosh, we've we've talked to people who have run into that situation where their employer isn't really giving them that, that opportunity, doesn't really even have that for their organization. And, and you, yeah, you do need to be prepared for that next step, and whether it's within the organizations you're currently serving in or if you need to um, take your skills elsewhere and be able to provide even a greater impact. Yeah, that's, that's key. That's key to, to long-term career success, and I think that's the other message we like to try to get across to folks is as you're coming out of the military, career success in the military was defined as how you, how you climbed the ladder within that organization. But it's different out, out in the civilian world. What impact, what impact can you have oftentimes, especially when we're talking about purpose? What is the impact that you can have, and are you still able to have that kind of an impact at your current level, at your current organization, or can you provide more value and more impact somewhere else? So that's, those, those are great pieces of advice. So, Ed, uh, tell me a little bit then as a, as a community, and, uh, you know, this, this podcast goes out to a lot of folks in the veteran community and, and a lot of the, in the private sector as well, but what can we do as a community to really kind of uh, support your organization and help you with what your purpose is in life? It can take several different forms. 
anyone that is blind or visually impaired, certainly the veteran community, but all of us know people that are blind or visually impaired or, or probably have connections that are outside the veteran community, I would ask that you just direct them to my site. And the reason for that is I try on a weekly basis to blog about new technology, about opportunities, about thriving, about the challenges that go along with losing your vision, all that type of thing. So it doesn't always bring a lot of money in, but the thing that makes me happiest is when I truly feel I impacted somebody else's life. Before I answer the other half, provide the other half of the answer, that's one of the things that led me down the path that I'm on now. I was proud to have been in the Navy. I was proud to be at Merck, but in neither case was I a major factor in that corporation. I was just a tiny cog in the middle of a big machine. The work mm -hmm. I do now, I'm directly responsible for my success, and I'm directly responsible when I help somebody. And there's something about that that I find irreplaceable. So that one half, as I say, please direct anybody blind, visually impaired, or a caregiver thereof my way. That would be very helpful. The other is I work with a number of partners. I'm proud to say that your, your team is one of those partners. But I'm partnered with organizations. They are all listed on my Employment Partners tab on my website. And they do anything from helping somebody get a veteran tax credit, a great way to get into a new company, uh, to, to show that company that they hire you, they're going to get a bit more money, to another company that really helps transitioning veterans find the perfect employers for them. And they're now expanding that to military spouses as well as people with disabilities. And of course, that can occur, include a veteran with disabilities. So it's a great matchmaking service. Uh, they're on there. And then I work a lot with the National Industries for the Blind, which we discussed earlier. So the other way you can help me is not only direct job candidates to that tab so that they can be registering, almost everything is free for a job candidate, but also introducing me to the companies that really have a mission and believe in the value of hiring veterans and people with disabilities. I'm connected to a lot of the larger companies, but it's equally important to me to connect to smaller regional companies that are doing great work. Having a strong database of candidates and then having wonderful opportunities for them to, to have the chance to join uh, makes me successful and goes to my ultimate mission, which is making them successful. That's great. And one, one follow-up question I had on that is you mentioned the smaller organizations. I think a lot of us who've had spent some time in, in corporate America, and I worked for a Fortune 100 company as well, they, they have these humongous organizations that are you know, dedicated for diversity and inclusion and all this good stuff. But what do you see the opportunity out there for, for folks, particularly with disabilities and, and veterans uh, as well, uh, with, that, with the smaller employer? What, what does that opportunity look like? I think in a lot of cases they might enjoy it more, but it depends. So the, the benefit in the very large corporations is it's going to feel an awful lot like what you did in the military. You've got a lot of structure there. You've got all the things that you're used to from the military. You may not like the pace of decision-making and some of those things, but the structures can feel similar. You end up in a smaller company, a lot of things are just going to be handled more loosely. And that can be a frustration. It can also be a wonderful experience. The thing that comes with that small organization, though, is something that you have in the military and I don't think you get in a large corporation, and that is considerable span of responsibility. When you're in a large company, as you well know, 
your your span is going to be very small. You may have an enormous amount of hours of work each day, but it's a very narrow focus because that's just the nature of a large company. In a smaller company, and boy, if you get into startups, it's even more so, you're responsible for everything. And, and you don't have somebody at your shoulder all the time trying to help you through that. So I think there's a real opportunity in smaller companies to to make an impact and feel that you're doing something impactful. The other thing is a smaller company, unless they focus on veterans or on disabilities, there aren't going to be a lot of people that look like us in them. Uh, you just, you'll be more of a unique resource. And this is going to seem like a bit of a tangent, but coming with cognitive diversity, which is really what that's about, I saw a story in today's paper, and I think it made so much sense. They were having trouble in South Carolina over towards Charleston with a vaccination drive-through program, and they, they were falling behind. People were getting frustrated, and somebody knew the manager at the local Chick-fil-A. Called that manager up. He came over. Within 15 minutes, everybody was flying through. They had switched from a healthcare one-on-one -on -one action to a retail setting. Take that same thing with somebody in the military. Somebody coming out of the military is going to bring a different skill and a different mindset to that small company, and it can be invaluable in moving them forward. Absolutely. I love that, I love that story. I had actually heard that one myself. My wife brought it to my attention. And, uh, yeah, it, it's I'm in South Carolina as well on the other end of the state. And uh, a great example of that is uh, yeah, I'm, I'm right next to a college town next to Clemson University, and the Chick-fil-A is on one of the main drags there. And every day at lunch, there's a, there's a line of cars down the road, but they they figure out how to do it efficiently. So that's, that's, a, that's an incredible story about reaching out to a resource um, and being able, to, being able to utilize that and how they can get something done. That's, that's great. I might so, add so one other thing. It, I think we, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step, on, step all over you there, but go ahead. My first job, my second job, actually, at Merck, when I went in there, I was talking with the engineers that were working for me, union engineers, and I said, so where are your maintenance procedures? And they said, oh, we don't need them. Everybody just knows how to do it. And I said, well, that means every one of you does it differently, right? He goes, no, no, we all do it the same. And I just shook my head and walked off. That's where a military mindset coming into a small company another way to just make a huge difference. And it's simple. You already understand it. Exactly. And uh, so many, so many small companies too are just in desperate need of that, desperate need of that. And I think too, when you look at that, you talk about that span of responsibility for folks coming in, that's a big way to deal with the underemployment challenge. Cause you can come in with, like you said, that military mindset and just in thinking those ways and bring, bring order to chaos in a lot of small organizations and really jump in at, at um, a level that really is commensurate with your skill and going back to what we said earlier, have a tremendous impact on what that organization is doing. So that's, that's a great point. So let's, I think we've got, uh, I think we're right at uh, our, about our 30 minute mark here. So Ed, is there anything else that, uh, that you wanted to share with us in terms of, of resources? I know we're, uh, we're going to have all the, Contact information and all the web links that you mentioned will be uh, included in the um, description that we uh, put post up when we post the blog. Is there anything else that we're missing today? I'm just going to give you two, give the whole audience two bits of advice. Never turn down a job you haven't been offered. And secondly, if you can't work <laughs> in your passion, find a great job that lets you support your passion. Beautiful. I love that Words one. Wisdom. We're going to steal that one. <laughs> Words of wisdom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
I can't I can't tell you how many times I've talked to service members. Oh, I had such a great interview. It was great. I know I'm good. Hey, wait a minute. Did you get a job offer yet? Do you have a letter? Well, no. <laughs> so, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Well, Mally, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it over to you to uh, take us out of here today. Great. Thank you, Dave. And thank you to our guest, Ed Henkler, and our host, Dave and Paul, for another wonderful show today. All links and contact information for the blind guide presented on today's show will be posted in the description. And as always, please feel free to check us out at vetsbeyondtheuniform.com. Or if you have any questions, you can reach us at training at vetsbeyondtheuniform.com. Thank you for tuning in and listening, and have a wonderful day, everyone. Stay safe. Take care, everybody. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.